This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work by visiting PCAAC.org. Welcome to Gifts and Graces. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. This is Gifts and Graces. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear from William Boyce as he explores PCA church culture, minority fatigue, and racial hospitality. William Boyce is the lead pastor of Christ Church of Arlington. This was originally recorded as a seminar delivered at the 2022 General Assembly. Let's listen as William Boyce provides insights into church culture, minority fatigue, and racial hospitality. My name is Billy. You are in Outsiders on the Inside. We're going to be discussing what church culture and racial fatigue and racial hospitality have to do with each other. We're going to be exploring these dynamics together. The material that I'm presenting today is part of my Doctor of Ministry research. Uh, A few years ago, I completed my Doctor of Ministry from Trinity School for Ministry in Ambridge, Pennsylvania. And one of the things that I was trying to study in that was what is the intersection of racial racial reconciliation and pastoral theology in the PCA. And the material for that I recently published as a book, Outsiders on the Inside, Understanding Racial Fatigue, racial resilience, and racial hospitality in our churches. Now, since we only have a brief window of time together today for us to be discussing some of these weighty topics, we're, we're not going to be able to cover everything, so I want to spend our time on what I think are the most helpful takeaways from that research uh, to help you engage your church cultures with the aim of growing in racial hospitality. If you're interested in reading the book, I have a couple copies uh, for, for sale up here. You can come talk to me after, and if you have any questions after, I'd love to meet you and uh, continue to um, carry the conversation on. So as we think about what racial hospitality is, I thought it'd be helpful for us to start out with a definition. What is racial hospitality? What do I mean when I say, how can we grow in racial hospitality? Uh, Here's what I mean by racial hospitality. Racial hospitality is intentionally and actively making room in your church culture for other racial cultures. I'll repeat that again. Uh, Racial hospitality is intentionally, actively making room in your church culture for other racial cultures so that your church culture grows in diversity and so that minority members at your churches feel free to bring their whole racial culture to the table. Racial hospitality, as I'm conceiving it, rests on what I would call Christian racial realism. That is that we live in a racialized society. 
Uh, we, we conceive of each other in racialized terms. We conceive of ourselves in racialized terms. And some of this, as Christians, we should admit, is a result of God's creational design. Some of it is as well uh, because of the fall, but all of it is under God's pro sovereign providential care. And so Christian racial realism does not advocate for colorblindness. We do not ignore racial difference. Instead, we embrace racial difference as part of something that God is working in, something that God is up to, but it's also not uh, critical race theory. It is not racial essentialism. It's not racial fatalism. We just simply say that race is a reality that is best understood through our identity in Christ. And with that in mind, when we think about racial hospitality, uh, we should come to the table recognizing that our minority brothers and sisters come to our churches wanting to know, can I bring my whole self to the table? Will all of me be welcome. And so in today's presentation, I want to ask three crucial questions as we explore racial hospitality. First, how do the PCA's theological commitments impact racial hospitality? Second, how do the PCA's black pastors experience racial hospitality? And third, how can our churches grow in racial hospitality? Let's jump in together with our first question. How do the PCA's theological commitments impact racial hospitality? Many of you know the motto of the PCA. We are faithful to the scriptures, true to the Reformed faith, and obedient to the Great Commission. The PCA's motto sets out for us these three fundamental theological foundations, the scriptures, the Reformed faith, and the Great Commission. And what many of you may, uh, some of you may know, many of you may know this as well, when the PCA was first being formed in 1973, the steering committee, the advisory convention met to talk about the future of the denomination that they were trying to form. And in their time together, they declared that all races would be welcome. To quote from the minutes of the advisory convention, it was resolved that the continuing Presbyterian Church, which then became the Presbyterian Church in America, the continuing Presbyterian Church movement would welcome fellow believers in Christ regardless of race. And so what we have here is some theological foundations and one vision coming from the founders, which was racial hospitality, racial welcome. And so let's ask together, do the PCA's theological commitments necessitate racial hospitality? Let's unpack faithfulness to the scriptures. When you read the Bible, you could characterize the entire biblical storyline as God's desire to bring together a diverse people into the unity of the church, beginning with Adam and Eve's mandate to proliferate humanity across the face of the earth and ending with a magnificent vision of a multi-ethnic eschatological worshiping community. The Bible consistently points toward a God who desires multi-ethnicity. And there are just a few passages that we can explore to illustrate this. In the Old Testament, we have Genesis 1 and 2. Humanity is given the cultural mandate, again, to, to diversify as they spread across the face of the earth. And then that cultural mandate becomes immediately uh, disobeyed in the Tower of Babel, where the, where the people gather together and refuse to obey God's plan. 
They, they come together, they stay together in one particular place, and God's discipline then in, actually accomplishes God's purposes. He determines that they would be pl- proliferated and uh, that they would be growing in diversity. Um, we could look at Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy 4, the people of Israel are commanded to follow the instructions of the law. And the rationale that God gives, one of the pieces of it, is that the nations would be watching on and that as Israel followed the law, the nations would be attracted to God's presence. They would marvel at the wisdom of God and the nearness of God. And so in Deuteronomy 4, we see God's eye towards the nations, even in the obedience of his people. Joshua 6, Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, is welcomed into God's people. Ruth chapter 4, Ruth, the Moabite widow, is welcomed into God's people. We could look at Ezra chapter 6. The people have returned from exile. They have consecrated themselves to the Lord, and they're about to celebrate Passover together. And what Ezra notes for us is that the returned exiles celebrate Passover alongside of everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And so in Ezra, in the Old Testament community, there's starting to be this multi-ethnic worshiping community together. And that becomes even more concrete when we consider the prophecy of Isaiah 56. God guarantees insider status to any outsiders within his kingdom. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. The foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring into my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And that's exactly what happens in the New Testament. We see in Mark 11, Jesus cleanses the temple in order to maintain God's multi-ethnic mission. Is it not written? This is Jesus's rationale for why he cleansed the temple. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? John chapter 17, Jesus prays that all of his people would be united as one, not just his disciples and apostles then, but all of the church that would come after. Ephesians chapter 2, Jesus' crucifixion, united, functionally united Jews and Gentiles into one people. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. And then at the culmination of the New Testament, we see John chapter 7, John's vision of a multi-ethnic worshiping community uh, in this eschatological uh, great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And then finally, Revelation chapter 22, there is a fully redeemed diversity in God's kingdom on the other side of the river, the river of life, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit in each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And so that's the biblical storyline. God is working to reclaim for himself a beautifully diverse worshiping community. It's what teaching elder Lance Lewis referred to several years ago in his seminar uh, at General Assembly, a redemptive ethnic unity. 
That's God's vision. That's God's, uh, that's God's design. In God's people, properly, there are no outsiders. In the most redemptive way, there are no outsiders within God's people because in Christ, everyone is an insider. And so the biblical storyline shows us God's desire for racial hospitality. And then that has direct bearing for us when we consider obeying the Great Commission. The Great Commission, Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. When we read the Great Commission against that backdrop of the overarching biblical storyline of racial and ethnic diversity, it's clear that the Great Commission is not just a call for church members to share the gospel with individual diverse peoples so that we can accomplish this wonderful eschatological worshiping kingdom, diverse kingdom in the future— uh, it built up, again, of all these just diverse individuals that look different. Actually, the point of it is that diverse, the diversity of the nations becomes incorporated into the church. And we would be so bold to say even the churches in Acts 6, the diaconal ministries of the church came about to end ethnic exclusivity within the church. If you go back and read Acts 6, there were people who were being excluded from the provision that the church was giving out, and they were a different ethnicity than the ones who were the insiders who were receiving the distribution. And so the apostles got together and established this new uh, ministry to ensure that all Christians were welcomed and treated equally. Acts 10, when the Gentiles received the Holy Spirit, uh, the message that comes to Peter from the Lord is what God has made clean, do not call common. Or another way that we could put it is don't reject what God has welcomed. If God has declared that someone is to be a kingdom insider, then you cannot then go and call that person person an outsider. God has made him or her an insider. And then Peter, when he sees the Holy Spirit poured out upon the Gentiles, he has this to say, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. When we look at Galatians 3 and Colossians 3, Paul breaks it out that ethnic unity is the logical outcome of the Great Commission. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And then in Romans 15, we hear that racial hospitality is the logical outcome of the Great Commission. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And so the Bible extols racial hospitality as God's plan. The Great Commission then propels us to practice racial hospitality within our churches. So what about the Reformed tradition? We are to be true to the Reformed faith. What does the Reformed tradition have to say about this? As we'll see, the Reformed faith places a great amount of emphasis on the Catholicity and the unity of the church. We are one holy Catholic church, and this has direct bearing on our study of racial hospitality. We could look at the Geneva Catechism, Calvin's Geneva Catechism. What is meant by the word Catholic or universal? It is meant to signify that there is only one head of the faithful, 
So they must all be united in one body so that there are not several churches, but only one which is extended throughout the whole world. And what is the meaning of what follows concerning the communion of saints? That is added to express more clearly the unity which exists among the members of the church. The Scots Confession, the, Kirk, the church is Catholic, that is universal, because it contains the elect of all ages, of all realms, nations, and tongues, be they of the Jews or be they of the Gentiles, who have communion and society with God the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, through the sanctification of his Holy Spirit. We can look at the Heidelberg Catechism. What do you believe concerning the holy Catholic Christian church? I believe that the Son of God, out of the whole human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, defends, and preserves for himself by his spirit and word in the unity of the true faith, a church chosen to everlasting life. So the Reformed tradition declares that the church is one, holy, and Catholic, and this points us toward ethnic diversity. Because again, the Catholicity of the church is its universal, uh, global nature. And it's important for us to remember that these are not just theological truths that apply to the invisible church. These are, uh, these are theological truths that are meant to be lived out within the visible church. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 26, on the communion of saints. All saints that are united to Jesus Christ, their head, by his spirit and by faith, have fellowship with him in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory, and being united to one another in love. They have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, as to conduce to their mutual good. So our union with Christ necessitates this holy Catholic Church to live out and practice our unity and our Catholicity. Herman Bavink, the great Dutch Reformed theologian, says this in uh, part four of his Reformed Dogmatics, Holy Spirit, Church, and New Creation, talking about the Catholicity of the Church. Christianity is a world religion suited and intended for every people and age, for every class and rank, for every time and place. That church is most Catholic, that most clearly expresses its, in its confession and applies in its practice this international and cosmopolitan character of the Christian religion. And so racial hospitality is absolutely part of that as we apply in our practice the cosmopolitan Catholicity of the church. Uh, G.C. Burkauer, also another Reformed theologian, it becomes clear that the whole life of the church, both doctrine and practice, is related to the critical testing of Catholicity. For every violation of the mystery of the truth of salvation, in word and deed, in confessional, political, or social heresy, can obscure the outlook on the qualitative richness of the whole. And I think that phrase social heresy is important for us to pick on. 
pick up on. We're really good at thinking about theological heresies, but I don't know that we always do a good job of identifying the social heresies that impinge on the Catholicity of the church. And we could name racism, racial exclusivity, racial partiality as social heresies that compromise our Catholicity in practice. Again, the Catholicity of the church requires us to practice racial hospitality. The Reformed faith propels us towards a welcome of other people. And so, do the PCA's theological commitments necessitate racial hospitality? I think the answer should be a resounding yes. Absolutely. All races welcome is the necessary outcome of our faithfulness to the scriptures, our fidelity to the Reformed tradition, and our obedience to the Great Commission. So then, if that's the case, do our minority members experience welcome? That's the second question for us today. Do our minority members experience welcome? Channeling the Westminster Confession of Faith, do they experience welcome that indicates to their hearts and souls that they are united to the rest of the church in love and having communion in each other's gifts and graces? So that's what I wanted to study in my Doctor of Ministry research. How do PCA, the PCA's black pastors experience racial hospitality? And so what follows is going to be a series of quotes from my doctor of ministry research. I'll just tell you a little bit about that. In this, in this doctor of ministry research, I interviewed 12 black pastors in the PCA. Now, uh, why black pastors and why these pastors? Uh, a couple of reasons. First is just context. I was already having these conversations with a number of my friends within our denomination and within other denominations. Uh, a second reason is group size. Of the over 5,000 teaching elders in the PCA, there are a little over 50 uh, black teaching elders, uh, almost 60 black teaching elders. And so that comprises around 1% of the number of teaching elders in our denomination. As one of the elders that I interviewed described it, they are an ultra-minority. And so when you're interviewing an ultra-minority, it's, it's actually kind of helpful to be interviewing this group because then you can get a, a good sense of how does this group uh, feel? How, what's the lived experience of this particular group? And then the third is just a historical reason. Historically, mainline Presbyterianism, Presbyterianism has historically been specifically exclusive uh, exclusionary towards African Americans. And so I wanted to get a sense of how the PCA was overcoming its history. And in these interviews, I just to tell you a little bit about how they came about, I started having these interviews with people that I already knew and then branched out from this diverse cohort of people that I already knew uh, and asked them, who else should I talk to to uh, round out my perspective? Uh, very important was a commitment to anonymity. So I have taken away all of the personal details that would uh, expose who exactly these individuals are. Again, we're dealing with an ultra minority in our denomination. And so it was very important that I protect the identity of the, the people that were sharing their stories with me uh, and with us. So again, my questions to these brothers was, what's it like to be black in the PCA. I was trying to capture, in the words of the research, the essence of a lived experience. What's it like to be a black pastor in the PCA? Central to this research method is something called transferability. I want to talk briefly about that. The goal of this was not generalizability. We're not trying to generalize from this something. So I can, I'm not trying to say this is how every single minority member in the PCA feels. Uh, rather, it is transferability. 
The goal of this is if this model works well, then you can take these questions and move it to a different context and ask a similar set of questions in a different context. So again, it's uh, not how does every minority member feel, but here's how this group feels, and now let's take this and go out and ask more questions. Let's find out more. Um, each participant in this research, including myself, we were committed to orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Uh, we were all thoroughly committed to the theological foundations of the PCA, and all of these brothers longed to see the theological foundations of the PCA lived out with greater fidelity. And so here's what I found. There are three movements to the experience of being black in the PCA. The lived experience of these black pastors begins with a sense of welcome. They are initially welcomed as insiders. Here's some quotes. They, they experienced welcome, first of all, because of shared theological convictions. As one pastor said, I embraced Reformed theology. Uh, another, it just became more and more clear, I'm really Reformed. Another, I believed the theology already when he came into the PCA. It was just spelled out better, more clearly. But it's stuff we're already familiar with, being African-American, the sovereignty of God. Of course you believe in that from your life experience. You know the doctrines of providence and things like that. It just makes perfect sense. Uh, along with the shared theological convictions at the beginning of their experience in the PCA, these pastors all said that one of the main reasons they stayed in the PCA was because they shared these theological convictions. Uh, theology, why did, why did I stay? Theology, I believe it's biblical. I trust it. I trust the system. I trust Calvinism. There's no other place I feel that would be a good fit for me theologically. I'm just glad to be in a denomination that's committed to orthodoxy. So there was this welcome as these pastors realized that the denomination shared their theological convictions. There was also a sense of ministry appreciation. They appreciated the ministries that they found at the churches. I knew that I really appreciated what this guy was preaching, and it really ministered to me. I enjoyed the preaching. It spoke to me intellectually. It felt natural and inviting. It spoke to me. It reinvigorated Christianity for me. There were some other issues tied around that, but it was mainly the fact that it spoke to me culturally. And on that particular uh, interviewee, the first experience of the PCA was in an urban PCA environment that placed a lot of emphasis on contextualization. So the fact that it spoke culturally to him is going to become very important as we listen to the testimonies of these other brothers. Um, so there was also a sense of hospitality within the churches as a, as a primary sense of welcome. It was a very different worship experience, this brother says, but I was always embraced. They just embraced and loved on us. How can you reject that? They didn't culturally understand me, but they all welcomed me into their homes. They invited me over to dinner. They welcomed me into their lives. Another said, we didn't know who the ministers were, but they loved us. They took interest in us, and they invited us over. So as congregants, these brothers were welcomed. And then in ministry, they were also welcomed into their various PCA settings. The Presbytery had an openness to people of all ethnicities, walks of life. They were welcoming. At church, we had an environment that was welcoming to everyone. It was awesome. Uh, another says, I was warmly received. There was never pushback. I was encouraged to be on committees. I've never felt li like I was excluded or included just because of my race. I always felt like I got the same fair shake as everyone else in the denomination. 
And so at the conclusion of this, we can say there was an initial welcome. But for every single one of these brothers, eventually there was a realization we're still outsiders. Even though there, there was this initial welcome, there was a hospitable reception and an indication that they were being accepted, there were still cultural barriers that signaled isolation and exclusion. And in their experiences, there was a spectrum, but to a man, each one articulated the strain of being an outsider in the denomination because of his race. Uh, there was isolation that set in for all of these brothers. Our experience was always feeling like outsiders, always feeling like minorities, paternalism, gracious acceptance, although a desire for conformity, be like us. The sense has always been a tolerance. Eventually, I began to notice that it was all white. I was the only black guy in this group. I was the only black guy at the church. I was the only black person in my presbytery, and these are from different people. I didn't know that it was unique being an African-American in the PCA until I think the first presbytery meeting I went to. And it was me and two others who were the only black people in the room of, I don't know, a hundred people. And then my first general assembly was a similar experience to that. So I was like, whoa, where am I? My first experience in the ministry in the PCA was very mixed. Racially, it was hard because I was alone in this environment. The isolation then usually led to a sense of betrayal. Uh, You can hear about the betrayal when it comes to the history of the PCA, when it comes to relationships within the PCA, uh, and that has an impact spiritually as well. Here's what one said. When I learned about all of the history of racial exclusion in the PCA, I felt betrayed all the more because I had already stopped building and cultivating or connecting and networking within the black church. So I would have to start all over again. So I was stuck. Do I keep going forward with these people? Because now this seems very uncertain for my future. This does not bode well for me being able to minister to the people that I want to minister to. Another, I didn't know the history or the context and things like that at this point. That came later. And so I asked, what was it like when you found that out? Again, you're like, whoa, where am I? What am I doing here? Another articulated the sense of betrayal when there was criticism. When he faced criticism for his explanations of various things within the church uh, regarding racially charged topics. He says, when stuff was coming at me, there was nobody that said, hey, this is wrong. This is unbiblical the way this is happening. And what he means by that is that when, he, when, when there was a lot of harsh criticism coming his way, no one stood up to defend him. No one stood up to criticize the person that was critiquing him. No one said, the way that you're handling this conflict is unbiblical. There were no allies. Another uh, said, I thought that their theology would overrule their culture, and it did not. Uh, The sense of betrayal then uh, leads to a deeper sense of cultural alienation. A very clear sense that uh, there is a majority culture, and we're not a part of it. Uh, One quote, the PCA is a culture not just a people of particular beliefs. It's very much a culture. And so as an African-American to come into the PCA, you realize that you're walking into another culture. When I came into the PCA, there was a cultural shock because the PCA has a particular kind of culture. 
One said, I would much rather be in a situation that was much more comfortable culturally. Another, I visited one of these suburban First Pres type churches before and I was completely culturally alienated. Another, you get the de facto message that says white is right. The de facto message that white European theological work is the standard for good theology. No one comes out and says that, but that's what happens. Most of the brothers and sisters that end up leaving the PCA, it's not over theology. It's over the cultural dynamics of dominant culture, subdominant culture. Um, I think it's manifested in the way that that many majority culture people even think about race. That comes with its own sense of cultural alienation. One of the things when it comes to African Americans is that there's not a day that I get up and I don't think about race, that it doesn't go through my mind, but for majority culture, you don't have to see these dynamics. In reality, you don't have to grow up and think about being white. I grew up thinking about being black. Another uh, quote, um, the thing that white people don't realize is that black people are preoccupied with race. I've said this before, I wake up in the morning, I'm black. I work my day, I'm black. And when I go to bed at night, I'm still black. Another quote uh, from another pastor, we have to play that game all week long. And now I have to go to church on Sunday and play the same thing. Think about it. Whites don't change on Sunday. Even in a multicultural church, they don't change. Now, take African Americans. They go to a multicultural church and they'll be just as quiet. Go home to one of their parties and see how quiet they are. They tend to assimilate anyway when they're in that setting. Most of us code switch. That's just part of what you do. And what happens when you don't code switch or assimilate? There's pushback, there's conflict and marginalization. Someone wrote in a congregational survey, I think it's inappropriate when he uses black vernacular in his preaching. One white guy actually told me, referring to a previous black pastor they had sat under, he said, you know, their style, I can understand it, but your style is so different. Uh, people asked me just before I became a pastor if my goal was to bring, quote, those black people to church. I had one white person who said that he thought we were going to plant a black middle-class church, and he said that we would do it the same way we would do a white church plant because black people are just dark white people. That's the kind of uh, racial marginalization uh, that they have faced. Uh, and again, it's, it's very, uh, or there, there's especially the sense of marginalization when these pastors tried to help contextualize the black experience for the majority culture. Um, this quote comes from a pastor who was trying to um, explain to his uh, mostly white congregation why there was such a national outcry after Trayvon Martin was, uh, was killed. Uh, he was saying, I was trying to be instructive to the congregation. I was at that time just to explain this is why you're seeing the outcry and this backlash. So let me instruct you how to engage. And it was just roundly rejected. Another pastor, anytime you raise these issues, they're like, you're you're, they're, they say you're bringing up stuff that's extra biblical. There's a non-trusting attitude. Or I would bring up examples of the talk I'd have with my sons when they're driving. I shared that with our church because I want them to know. And people feel like you're shaming white people. People say that stuff, and there are people that have left our church because of that. Uh, another example of racial marginalization, people will begin to throw out what I would say is a test balloon. So what do you think of Jesse Jackson? What do you think of Al Sharpton? Why do all black people vote Democrat? Don't they know that it was Democrats who were the ones who were pushing 
who were pushing segregation. Uh, another pastor, there would be a lady who every time I went to preach, she would stand up and leave right before I started preaching. Or if I came and she saw me and the senior pastor wasn't there, she would leave. When I told the senior pastor, he said, she's what you would classically call a racist. She doesn't believe that a black man should be preaching to her. Another pastor uh, said, I feel disenfranchised, like my voice doesn't matter, when I feel like my heroes don't matter. When I hear people say, no one from my ethnic world has ever made a positive contribution to theology or to Christianity. Those kinds of things. The hero worship of Southern Presbyterian fathers. Those kinds of things are subtle ways of saying, you're always going to be an outsider here. So it makes it difficult to call other people to enter into something when you feel threatened there. And so I asked, do you feel like people say your heroes have not made a positive contribution? I've heard that verbatim. I actually heard someone say those very words to me, y'all sing good. That's about the only contribution that you have made. And there's no other word for that other than marginalization, uh, diminishing of, uh, of a culture because of, uh, because of race. And the end result of all of this is that there's an exhausting pressure to conform, to assimilate culturally in order to gain acceptance and to avoid conflict. Uh, a pastor summed it up this way. Part of the experience is feeling like there has to be an apologetic when you're bringing these things up. Like you're saying, no, I'm not getting away from the gospel. No, this isn't an addition. I have to help people see that this is actually an outworking of the gospel from scripture. So there's a kind of a built-in apologetic that you realize you have to give. And sometimes that's tiring. I asked tiring because he immediately said, because you can't just be. You're worried about making a mistake because you're going to be classified as a liberal or a heretic or a militant or getting away from the gospel. So at this point, with the fatigue and the sense of being an outsider, they come to a crossroads, initially welcomed and then discovering that you're still an outsider. So you have a decision to make. Are you going to stay or are you going to leave? Um, at this point, many minority ministers, many minority congregants leave but, uh, but for those who choose to stay, there's an intentional decision. We need to learn to thrive. And so, for, again, for those who stay, there, there's an intentional doubling down to seek to learn to thrive. And just as a note on this point, when I was trying to come up with a language for how to name this third movement, I discussed it with one of the men that I had interviewed. And I was talking about naming it Become Culture Changers. And that was sounding a little bit too triumphalistic. And so I floated the language of learning to thrive. And his response was, yes, it is like learning to thrive in a hostile culture. And so in order for them to remain in a place that held the same theological convictions but was a place of pain and fatigue, these pastors needed to learn how to thrive. How do they do that? Well, one of the first things that they did is lean into God's call. Significantly, every pastor named God's call as a reason for staying. Here are just a few of the quotes. I sensed a call to ministry, to be in the PCA, to plant a cross-cultural church next to a historic black community. The only thing I can draw from that is that is the Holy Spirit, a calling from God. I'm here because there's a calling from God. Another central to our theological commitment is the sovereignty of God. He determined the time and the seasons for all men and all places. And so if I believe that, what am I doing here? God put me here. Another, it's a providential calling. Another, I think the Lord has called me to the PCA. I think that's really important. I do feel called to the PCA. 
In addition to embracing a personal call, there is great power from seeing God's call and participating in God's work. When these pastors see the biblical paradigm of a multicultural church, and they recognize that they are part of a movement that God is doing in the church, then they're great emotional and spiritual resources. It's a biblical commitment. Reading through scripture, it became more and more clear to me it's Christ's intention to have a multi-ethnic, multicultural worshiping community that we call the church, and that is what he is doing through through the gospel. Another said this, it's not diversity for the sake of having different colored faces, it's to the greater glory of God that we express the expansiveness of his love and his kingdom vision. Another way of learning to thrive is finding community. And many of these pastors found especially a helpful form of support from relationships with other minority ministers. Uh, a couple of quotes for you. In terms of being an African-American pastor in the PCA, it's really those connections with some of the other black pastors that are probably the most life-giving. Another said, I'm, uh, how, how to thrive, I'm part of a cohort with other black pastors. Another, there was a relational connection with white folks, but particularly with other African-Americans to say, okay, we can kind of belong here together, and that's a reason that we've been drawn here. I, another said, I had to get to know the brothers and sisters of color who are stuck in this middle road and realize that we are a culture within ourselves, within the PCA. Connecting with them has helped me to be able to persevere and realize that I don't have to deny who I am as a black man to fit. I can be who I am and that's okay. That has brought me great freedom. That has helped me to continue the journey. And so these relationships allowed each minority pastor to enjoy a space where there was kind of a monoculture within other African Americans where they could have the relief of being a majority in that shared space together. But of course, that doesn't mean that they didn't find relationships with other, um, other, mine, uh, other ethnicities or other white pastors or mentors helpful. In fact, healthy cross-cultural relationships were also very life-giving. As one pastor said, I'm into relationships and people. I have relationships with white ministers. If you don't have that, you're not truly multicultural. Another said that there are the joys of seeing people who want authentic relationships, and they don't want you to hide yourself, and they do want you to share that. They want to enter into that. And the result is that there was, uh, some of these pastors experienced a growing number of allies who would support them. They are some of the first people to rise up and defend those who are being disenfranchised. They are the first to speak up now, and to see that happening feels more like a family. Another way that they were uh, learning how to thrive was by building for the future. These pastors saw their ministry in the PCA as investing in the PCA's multi-ethnic future, and that was a way that they were able to resist racial fatigue. One said, I want to give the younger generation something I didn't have, and that is mentorship from an older African-American teaching elder who's been in the denomination for a long time. Another said, one of the things we're very adamant about where I'm located is raising up leaders from within our particular community, and we're in a predominantly African-American community. And the final way that these pastors learned how to thrive and develop racial resiliency is to practice gratitude. 
all of them were able to express gratitude by recognizing God's hand in their lives and their ministry. Every denomination has flaws. The PCA has grown a great, great deal. I'm encouraged. It's not perfect, but we are making progress, significant progress. I've had some great experiences within the PCA. I feel more supported now than I've ever felt. And that was coming from a brother who's been in the denomination for at least a few decades. So practicing gratitude helps to lift their spirits. So what's it like to be black in the PCA? According to the testimony of these black pastors, it is to be an an insider, welcomed as an insider, then to discover that you are still an outsider culturally, and then it's to begin to learn to thrive. To be black in the PCA is to deal with fatigue, but also learning to hope. And so how can our churches grow in racial hospitality so that we can contribute to the movement of hope within our denomination? Hopefully, by now it's clear that doctrine is not the problem. The problem is not that we believe different things about the Bible. The problem is not that we believe different things about the Westminster Standards. The problem is culture. The PCA has a very strong, dominant culture that makes it hard for the denomination and for many of our churches to extend racial hospitality. And so if we are going to become a church where all races are welcome, we need to address culture. And there are two things that we can do to address culture. First, we can identify cultures that wound. We need to identify in our churches and in our denomination cultures that wound. Here are some hallmarks of a culture that wounds, according to the interviews and the quotes that we've already heard today. A culture that wounds has a strong sense of what we would call white cultural normativity, where, uh, where white is de facto right. A culture that wounds um, has, uh, is a place where cultural values, things like politics or economics or just other cultural preferences, where these cultural values are conflated with theological foundations, either implicitly or explicitly. And so if someone has a contrasting political view, they become theologically suspect. That's a culture that wounds. A culture that wounds demands one-way assimilation. You need to be like us rather than two-way shared growth, uh, where there's a bilateral exchange that happens. A culture that uh, wounds, in a culture that wounds, a minority person's pastoral concern is dismissed as being a political concern. A minority person's heroes are either ignored or dismissed, and harmful words are used to marginalize the minority Christian. If we think about a culture that wounds theologically, a culture that wounds falls prey to cultural idolatry, it falls prey to sins of partiality that are explicitly condemned in the scriptures, and it falls prey to conditional brotherly love. Uh, whether this is uh, by the sin of omission or by the sin of commission, where love and embrace are given or withheld because of simply cultural preferences. Uh, culture, the church cultures like this are incredibly damaging to our minority members. In these cultures, they in- experience increased stress, physical, emotional, and spiritual burdens, and race-based trauma. And I just want to make clear, 
something that hopefully I don't need to say, but I'll say it anyway. A church that is 99% white is not necessarily a church that wounds. Uh, a, a monocultural church, a church that is largely white or largely any other culture, that is not necessarily a culture that wounds. It might be uncomfortable, but that sense of cultural discomfort can be mitigated as the church seeks to extend real racial hospitality. So this is not an indictment of white churches or a white denomination per se. Instead, it's a call for all of us to root out the cultural dynamics that actually wound other people. And to do that, after we identify cultures that wound, we need to develop cultures that heal. And if we listen to the testimonies of our brothers, uh, then here are some hallmarks of healing cultures. A healing culture is going uh, to abound in curiosity and delight. There's going to be an appreciation and welcoming of the entire person, including their racial culture. Again, this is not colorblind Christianity. We're going to be delighting in the diversity that people are bringing to the table. There's going to be a sense of support an acknowledgement that, uh, that there are going to be unique needs and understanding and accommodating of unique situations. An example of this, uh, again, like I talked about, these pastors experienced great uh, relief from having time in a monocultural space with other black pastors. And if a person looks at that and labels it something like reverse racism and says that you're just being uh, as... Um, as segregationist as anybody else, that accusation is wounding. It takes this thing that is actually helpful and enables them to exist within the, uh, as a minority within this other multi-ethnic space, it, and it, it ruins it. And so it's important for us to extend support, understanding, accommodation as we think carefully about these things. A culture that heals is going to express solidarity. We're going to recognize and share cultural discomfort. We would say, I refuse to let you be the only person who's uncomfortable here. We're going to allow another culture to have the seat at the table so that the larger culture changes and so that we would not allow our minority members to suffer the burden of cultural discomfort alone. It's something that we can share together through food or music, liturgy, preaching, biblical application to culture, cultural interpretation, ministry. Those are a few the ways that we can express solidarity. A culture that heals is going to enjoy exchange. There's this emphasis on exchange, mutual sharing, self-gift. We're going to move from fear to celebration. We're not going to ask, what will we lose if we incorporate you into our culture? Instead, we're going to say, what will we gain? And then lean in with a sense of expectation. And finally, a culture that heals is marked by fellowship real koinonia, intimacy, true belonging to one another. A culture that heals will seek out fellowship. Now, how can we do that? Uh, a few quotes um, to let our brothers guide us. Um, cultural intelligence. We can develop cultural intelligence. Uh, one quote, they have good intentions, but they lack the know-how. They lack the cultural intelligence. That would be something I'd encourage my majority culture brothers and sisters to seek out. Cultural awareness, cultural intelligence, grow in that area because it is really hard to love people who are different than you if you don't know anything about their culture. 
We can listen with charity. PCA pastors say to me, there's no way I can integrate my hometown because we're 99% white and a white community in my city. But in a sense, I would say white pastors can acknowledge my world from the pulpit. Another way is to acknowledge that the ground of what we're doing is biblical. It's important to say, you know, what these brothers are doing is biblical and then say, I'm willing to listen and not automatically judge and say, this is out of bounds. Another, we can, after we listen charitably, we can then put it into action. The question for me is, are they being listened to and not necessarily just listened to, but is the advice being put into practice? I think that's where a lot of the disconnect has been. It's not simply enough to say we've been given an opportunity to give our peace and our thoughts and our feelings, which sometimes run contrary to what the dominant culture in the PCA experiences or feels comfortable with. But for me, I would feel more supportive if much of what has been communicated communicated will be put into practice. Um, We can put more people into positions of influence. We can gather more people into uh, agencies and equip people. Uh, One uh, distinction that one pastor made was that this isn't just a power grab, but it's actually an understanding for us to uh, grow our cultures. And then finally, um, an emphasis on relationships. When there is no relationship with people, you look at social issues differently. If you have a relationship with someone, issues of race and justice aren't just political issues. So develop relationships with people is how we can uh, develop in our congregations cultures that heal. So where can we begin? Uh, Just briefly as we uh, finish up, where can we begin? First, you can ask in your context, what's it like to be black in the PCA? Take someone out for coffee. What's it like to be black in the PCA? Or transferability, what's it like to be you in the PCA? Uh, whether you are Latino, Asian, African, or African-American, American First Nations, male, female, ask, what is it like to be you in the PCA? And if you're a minority member, uh, it would be helpful if you would then reciprocate the question and say, what's it like to be white in the PCA? Because not many, not many of us will think about that. So please, uh, it, please help us by asking that reciprocal question. Again, this is not critical race theory. It's very important that we don't do this as an ideological test balloon. This is an invitation to intimacy, an expression of hospitality. And then we can ask, what are areas of church life that create racial tension for you? What are ways that we implicitly or explicitly communicate exclusion? And then finally, how can we better welcome you, all of you, into the community? And when we ask questions like this, when we develop relationships like this with our brothers and sisters of other ethnicities, then we as a church can be a place where all races are welcome, really. Thank you. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They are free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces. Gifts and Graces.